Welcome everyone to the Umrpreneur Live podcast, where I interview Muslim entrepreneurs at the top of their game that are doing something special, building something unique for the Ummah. And today I'm joined by none other than Brother Arib Siddiqui. Arib, salam alaikum, brother. Walaikum assalam. Thank you so much for having me, Abi. Really good to the be pleasure here. is all mine. The pleasure is all mine. I'm so excited for us to dive into this. And to give you guys a bit of background on Arib, Arib is the founder and CEO of Kestrel. Okay, and you can find the app with the website at kestrel.co.uk. And this is an app that helps Muslims to budget, to save, to invest in line with their values, right? So ethically and in a way that is, of course, halal. And Arib, a bit of background on him, he's an MBA from Cambridge with a background in Big Four Consulting. He specializes in working with banks and wealth managers in the digital space. And of course, now he's been working so hard on building up Kestrel, which is a really amazing project with a big team. And I'm really excited for where this is heading, inshallah. So we're going to dive into all of that in this episode. And the best place to start, brother, is if you could share with us a little bit about what even inspired you to become an entrepreneur. So what was it that you know yeah. motivated you to start a business in the first place? So uh, it sounds weird to say, but I had no entrepreneurial ambition whatsoever. <laughs> Um, you know, throughout throughout my life, I'd always thought that I was just going to go into a big company and build a career there, and that's what I was doing for the uh, for the majority of of my career. I was working at big companies like Deloitte and PwC Consulting, mm -hmm. and like you said, uh, you know, helping banks and asset and wealth managers, uh, basically with their strategies, their digital strategies, helping them to come mm -hmm. up with apps and and the like. It wasn't until I decided to take a year out to focus on myself, and I I applied for an MBA. Alhamdulillah, got in. Uh, and was studying for an MBA at the University of Cambridge, where I met my co-founder, uh, Dying Termizi. So Dying is a brother from Malaysia. He worked in and around Islamic banking his entire career. Um, and when we met, we were just constantly thinking of ways in which we could perhaps combine our experiences to do something. Uh, we thought about setting up maybe a consultancy or applying to different jobs together. Um, but it wasn't until one lunchtime in between lectures where he asked me a question, which was, Ari, why aren't you using an Islamic bank? Because he saw me paying for lunch with a, a non-Islamic debit card. And I didn't really have a good answer for him. I started off saying, oh, oh you know, my parents signed me up for this when I was younger. And, uh, you know, there's not really any good options available in the UK. But then the horrible truth started to dawn on me that I didn't really know why I wasn't doing it. It was just something I always assumed wasn't available for me or wasn't an option. Um, and I was trying to figure out, am I alone in this, in this experience as a British Muslim, not using any kind of Islamic banking or investment provider? Uh, so we spent our summer, we had to do a summer research project. We put out a nationwide survey uh, to try and understand how Muslims were banking and who they were banking with to figure out whether I was alone in, in my situation. And I, I found out that was very much not the case. Uh, the majority of Muslims, despite desiring some kind of uh, Islamic banking or Islamic investment solution, very few of them were actually going out there and using it. And the reasons for that were varied, but mainly because they didn't know what existed and what was out there. And the things that did exist were not digitally um, not digitally convenient enough for them to actually use. So there's no real kind mm -hmm. of app and, and no proper website to which they could bank and invest from. So those were the big barriers. Right. And then, of course, you saw you saw this challenge in, in the industry. You saw that there was you know, uh, an opportunity to provide a solution that people were looking for and didn't have. And of course, it's a big endeavor, right? I mean, building an app and building an entire company, uh, it's it, its a big commitment. So you saw this gap and then you decided, you know what, I'm gonna go and dive into this. At this point, where were you at in your life? Because 
a lot of people think, you know, I'm maybe I'm working at my job or I'm in this situation. I don't know. Should I start yeah. a business? Should I not? So what made you decide, you know what? I think this is the right time. I, I want to work on this. I want to see if I can create the solution. <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't easy. I'll, I'll be honest. So from my, from my background, my family, um, you know, Pakistani, British Pakistani, then they weren't too keen on me dropping and leaving my, my job behind to, mm -hmm. uh, to go and pursue this. Um, and, a lot of people describe entrepreneurship as the equivalent of jumping off a cliff um, and trying to build a plane before you right. hit the ground, right? <laughs> but there are there are steps you can take to try and get validation and make sure your idea is okay and working okay before you just leave your job. So mm -hmm. I didn't just leave everything behind and go into doing this um, full time. I already had a job secured um, at PwC where I started uh, consulting. Um, whilst I was working on Kestrel in my weekends and in my free time in the evenings, you know, whenever I got a, a spare chance. And we were really just trying to figure out, does this idea have legs? We'd kind of got some kind of validation from users where we did the survey to understand whether it worked or not. Next, we had to figure out, okay, we know the problem. Can we find some kind of a solution? We continue to speak to users to understand it, but as a FinTech or a financial technology type idea, we needed a certain level of capital to get this off the ground capital so that we could apply for licenses so we could hire a tech team so we can build and, and grow in that way yeah. not all ideas require this but we needed we needed to do that to get to our minimum viable product we needed a mm -hmm. small amount of capital um so we started pitching for investment and the idea we gave ourselves six months and we myself and dying we said to our, each other if we do not have some kind of investment in six months and some kind of product to show for this, then it's not going to work. We'll forget about it. Right. So we gave ourselves six months. We graduated in September. We were like uh, in September of 2019. We said by March 2020, if we don't have anything, we'll give up. And Alhamdulillah, uh, we got a lot of interest from different investors who knew what they were talking about. People who were running big banking institutions in and around Islamic finance. And Alhamdulillah, that was uh, that was great. So by uh, January of 2020, we closed our first funding round for about 150,000 pounds. And Alhamdulillah, it was our first real validation that not just people were willing to put money behind it, but it was people who knew what they were talking about were willing to do that. So that's mm -hmm. when we decided, okay, we're going full time. We are all, uh, all systems go on, on this idea. Hmm. That's beautiful. Mashallah. I love that. And I, I, I really, uh, it's, this is exciting because this is, you know, something that so many people would love to do and they have all these great ideas and they'd love to build it. And I think the, the biggest question that I always get is, you know, uh, Abby brother, I have this amazing idea. How do I go and get funding? How do I go and, you know, I, I need investors. And it's usually, of course, you know, they're asking me this, but there's still nothing concrete. So I want to ask you, what was your experience like to go through that, right? And to actually secure yeah. funding? Did you have to put any systems in place? Did you have to build something first? Um, I mean, yeah. what was that process like for you? So it's a bit tricky. I mean, typically what you would want to do is to show as much traction as possible uh, mm -hmm. before you were going to go out and, and pitch. Um, but the first thing I'll say before any of this is if you don't need uh, investment, then don't go for it because it's an incredibly taxing, time-consuming process, which is going to take you away from the two things that matter the most, which are talking to customers and building your product. So this is going to take up all your time. We had to do it because we were a, a company that required capital. We couldn't get off the ground without a certain level of it in terms of you know licenses and actually building the tech. A lot of people don't need it. A lot of people can bootstrap, do it off their own back or actually get some profit through the door and, and re reuse that. So I just wanted to start off and say, if you don't need to fundraise, then, then I wouldn't recommend it. 
Um, in terms of what we did to try and allay anyone's fears and, and make sure that we were a, a, val a valid and a valuable proposition for people, um, you know, the pitch deck, making sure the pitch deck was incredibly, incredibly clear and honed. We had to go through something like 20 iterations of it just in that first couple of months, um, because every person we spoke to, uh, we'd learned something about it. They'd ask us a question which we hadn't anticipated and we would make a proper kind of nice page or some kind of answer to it and put it in the appendix. So making sure we had that pitch deck on point. But the biggest thing that people were evaluating us on more so than anything else was the team. Um, what was our what was our background? What have we done before? What have we worked on together before? Um, all of those things were coming together. And we, time and time again, people were saying, for an entity like this, where it's quite hard to build that minimum viable product, that first prototype, uh, without an initial outlay of capital, the main thing they're going to be evaluating us on were ourselves and what we looked like and what we did. So uh, myself, my background uh, being in, in consulting before and strategy consulting for some pretty big firms or some pretty big uh, uh, clients that, um, that really helped, you know, uh, people had seen that I wasn't just doing this for the first time. I'd done similar types of things in the past. Dying with his background in banking and operations and Islamic finance really helped add some gravitas and some weight to it. We really had to though, uh, show that we had a tech kind of ability, some kind of function because me with the strategy dying with the operations, we were missing tech. And thankfully, Alhamdulillah, we had uh, someone within Dying's network, an old school friend of his, who was the CTO for one of the biggest e-commerce firms um, in Malaysia at the time. And we managed to convince him to come on board and we're very glad that he did. So Irfan Radzi came on as a CTO. Um, and the final piece of the puzzle that we were, were kind of lacking was that, you know, we were three kind of 20 something guys who were trying to set up this big company claiming that we were going to change the face of Islamic finance. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of people don't give you a lot of weight when you are relatively young. Um, I think that's something we kept on finding out as we kept on pitching. Um, so we realized that something had to change there. And another thing that we were perhaps lacking was when it comes to finances, the regulatory side and the compliance side is really, really important. So Alhamdulillah, we managed to convince my dad. Uh, my dad is, uh, he's, you know, runs his own uh, financial crime consultancy, has worked in and around as head of audit for some of the biggest uh, banks in the UK and uh, is a real compliance expert. So we managed to bring him on as the fourth co-founder as our chief financial officer. And that really helped add some weight and some gravitas to our offering. So a long-winded way of me saying that the team was the ultimate thing that convinced people uh, with us. A bit different from other startups, but that's what worked for us. I love that, Michelle. That's actually, I love how you really clearly broke it down and you mentioned all the different, you know, facets that you had to put together to be able to qualify and access funding. And that's really something that a lot of people miss. And if I understand correctly, you spent months putting together, you know, your business plan and your pitch and your team in order to then be able to access that funding, right? So it wasn't just, hey, I have this idea. Here's you know uh, what I think it should be uh, now and now give me forty thousand pounds, which unfortunately I see a lot of that happening, guys. So take note. This is what you should be doing. This is the right way to do it, <laughs> mashallah. So thank you for sharing that. I want to ask you, you know, based off what you shared with me, because now I see you have a, a, a big team, mashallah. We go on the website, we go in the about section, and I saw that you're, I think, over 10, 10 people right now working on this. So pretty yeah, massive project. Have, so uh, go ahead. About 14, 15 people. 14, mashallah. Yeah. So yeah, big number of people, man. So 
what was that journey like going from, you know, starting off with those four initial people, yourself, your co-founder um, uh, and, uh, you know, the tech specialist as well as your father, and then growing and scaling to now a 14, 15 person team, because especially as a startup, you know, we have to make sure we still, you know, have our people that are in line with our values. They understand the company yeah. culture. They understand the mission. How much time did it take you to scale? And what was that experience like for you? We had to scale up relatively quickly because uh, mm. we realized the task was quite quite large at hand. Initially, the first prototype was something that we can build with a very rough and ready team. Uh, you know, Irfan is our CTO. Um, he's the complete package. You can do front-end development, back-end development, UX design, do all mm. of that. But uh, as you know, I've learned throughout this journey, a CTO's job is not just to be a developer. And for anyone else out there, this is a common dilemma, a CTO is someone who can control every facet of the development process um, without necessarily having to get their hands dirty and, and go into it themselves, but control mm. that process and that workflow. And one of the biggest risks that a lot of startups fall into is being unable to meet deadlines and to plan appropriately with the cash that they have towards, you know, set towards that goal. Because if you can't meet that within a certain time period, then, um, you know, a lot of investors are going to start losing faith in you. So we had to build out that team. So it started to grow quite organically with Irfan having quite a big network of people within Malaysia um, who he knew in all these different areas from front-end development, back-end development, user design process. And you know, we would just put out feelers, come uh, speak to them, interview them. Sometimes we didn't think they'd be a good fit for the company. You know, the startup lifestyle is very different from working for a big corporate. It can mean you know a lot, a lot of hours, a lot of late nights, a lot of weekends. Uh, for not very much upfront reward, but for the promise of the big idea and the big picture to come. That doesn't suit everyone and that's fine, but we had to find those people and that did. Um, so it was at first a little bit tricky uh, convincing people, but Alhamdulillah, once we got four or five people out there and we you know, started to get recognized in certain publications and Alhamdulillah winning, winning certain reward, uh, awards and things like that, it became a lot easier to get the word out there about what we were doing and to hire people. So our tech team are all based out in Malaysia. Um, and there's a really cool kind of culture that has developed there, um, which I hesitate to say frat house, but that's kind of what it sort of turned into a little bit. <laughs> because when we started going, uh, developing Kestrel in earnest, um, the lockdown had just occurred, right? Uh, not just in the UK, but in Malaysia as well. So we were in the situation where we were trying to design an app and everyone was working remotely. And it's not the easiest thing to do, to do a design sprint and to do everything remotely. And, you know, I mean, there are softwares and things to do that, but it wasn't very organic and it wasn't helping the creative process. So we made the decision to rent an Airbnb um, as the kind of proxy Kestrel office. And uh, our developers that we had about five, five or six of them at the time, all quarantined together within that Airbnb. Uh, to really kind of help fuel the creative process. So they were quarantined together for about a month and a half uh, during that initial lockdown in Malaysia. And it really, really helped. That was the first version of the app that was developed. Mm. You know, they were night and day thinking about different things, but not in like a structured office type format. Um, you know, they had like a PlayStation and a football table and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but it, it really kind of helped them to design that initial version of the app. And that is the culture that has sort of developed out there within the team. In the UK, it's uh, it's a little bit different. We're a little bit more formal. You know, uh, I quite often have to wear a suit and tie and talk to investors. Uh, our legal team and the finance guys are all over here. So it's a little bit of a different vibe, probably a bit more formal. 
whereas Malaysia is kind of where all the fun happens. Mm. It, it's interesting you say that because right now we work in a you know in an environment with that is very much you know disconnected physically but connected virtually, right? And so mm. as 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 you know, I mean, I myself, my team, one is in Egypt, Yusuf, and another one is in Pakistan, Babar. So I mean, we're you know all over the country, all the, all over the place essentially, right? In different countries and. Alhamdulillah, we stay connected, you know, virtually we have, you know, our, our, our little in-house communication like Slack and Discord, et cetera. But what you're essentially sharing with me here is that there was a certain, you know, level of, I would say, uh, synchronicity that you wanted to achieve and that you had trouble achieving, you know, mm-hmm. virtually. And you wanted to get in one space and you wanted to brainstorm together and you wanted to work together on this, you know, within the same room. Do you feel like when you're creating this kind of big project and you need all hands on deck that it makes a difference to do that versus, you know, being connected online and doing Zoom meetings and chatting on Slack, et cetera? So I think certainly now, um, you know, now that we're over a year into various lockdowns and coronavirus, uh, Mm. where Zoom fatigue is, I think it is a real thing. I think people get tired of constant back-to-back meetings of sitting silently and waiting until you're called on of, you know, keeping your camera off because you're you're trying to do something else at the same mm-hmm. time, and that can happen. I I think there is something to be said for being present, for being in a room around other people. Um, it can just make you go up a couple of levels, just in terms of you know creatively, your thought process, just being more present and in the moment. That can definitely help. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of benefits to remote working as well. A lot of uh, you know, a, a lot of our team actually have, you know, families and young kids and all of that and remote working really, really works well for them. And I'm not, not saying that we don't do that because absolutely we do. But when it comes to those kind of design sprints, we use this Google design sprints type methodology over a five day process. It does kind of help to have everyone in one place all working together, whiteboards, you know, sticky notes, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what's worked for us so far. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, I love it because you kind of decided, okay, all hands on deck. Did you travel to Malaysia to do this as well? Did you go yourself? Unfortunately, I can't write yet until I get fully okay. vaccinated. Malaysia okay, right. Really okay, so this is still, this is still pretty recent. With their travel policy. It's so this pretty is recent, pretty... yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. and I, mean, I went on your website. I can see that, you know, right now you're very much in the stage where I believe you've already, you know, developed the functionality where people can connect their bank accounts, they can track their finances, uh, yeah. you know, so they can budget. What are some other functions? Well, here, let's rewind a little bit. What's the first functionality that you actually decided to build out as your minimum viable product? Yeah. And what are the, the future ones that we can expect from Kestrel, right? Moving so there's forward. a bit of a story. There's a bit of a story here. When mm. we initially went into this from that first survey we ever did when we were on the MBA, we came out of that thinking minimum viable product is a debit card linked to an app, this kind of digital bank, which had really been taking off in the mm. UK. Um, you know, there were all kinds of digital banks that were popping up, people like Monzo and Starling Bank. So we thought we'll just do the same thing and say it's for Muslims. Um, but we'd made this really kind of what I know now is a kind of a schoolboy error when you're talking to customers, which is you're focusing entirely on um, solutions and asking them what the solution should be, as opposed to focusing in on the problem that they're actually experiencing. Um, when we so initially when we were pitching, we were talking about this debit card link to an app. As I learned more about how to talk to customers properly, asking them more um, general questions around the problems, like what's the hardest part about the problem that you're facing today? Uh, What have you done to try and solve this problem? What don't you like about the solutions you've tried already? All of these very sort of not very specific questions, which will really kind of 
made me understand the pain point they're experiencing more. It wasn't a debit card that was going to solve those things. Um, and when we asked them, look, if we produce a debit card, would you like that? People would say yes, but it was more sort of the cherry on top as opposed to the thing which is really addressing the pain point. The real problem Muslims were facing was how to amass and grow their wealth in line with their religious values without feeling like they had to compromise by taking on interest, by investing in things they didn't understand or just not investing whatsoever. That was the real kind of crux of the problem. So we went back to the drawing board and we thought, well, what is the personal finance journey? What is it that people need to do within that? And it's broken down into a few key steps. Number one, budgeting, making sure you've got more money coming in than you have going out and you know exactly what you should be spending on. Uh, number two, sorting out your debts and building an emergency fund. As a Muslim, that's really, really important, especially for high interest paying type debts. You don't want to be holding on to those any longer than you should. Uh, number three, figuring out your short-term goals uh, versus your long-term goals. Short-term goals are things that you want to achieve in the next five years, things that you want to, uh, maybe it's a deposit for a house or, or you know, buying a car or saving up for a wedding. And then number four is figuring out your long-term goals. These are typically like retiring, you know, your pension, sending kids to school, that kind of thing. The reason we differentiate between short-term and long-term is because in the short-term, you're much better off saving for those types of goals instead of investing um, because you know as you know investments uh, run a certain amount of risk they can go up as well as down uh, down as well as up i mean you can lose a lot of money in the short term especially so that's why if you need money very quickly maybe you need like 500 pounds next month it's probably not best to go and invest that in the stock market or in bitcoin because anything could happen you could lose that whereas saving is a more sure-fired way of building up that money and then it, for long-term goals, they were better off investing. So this is a long-winded way of me saying that at Kestrel, we were trying to figure out how to uh, meet each of those, those criteria. And we started off with number one, which was budgeting. And that's what we decided to go off the ground with. There was an added uh, benefit in that it was actually relatively quick for us to go down that route rather than going down the investment and the savings routes, which required more stringent and strict regulation and, and licenses. So we went with budgeting first as our MVP, and that's what's out today. It's the second iteration of our budgeting tool. That's amazing, mashallah. I love that. So now that you're at the stage, right, and you have the uh, mashallah, you have the you have the ability to link to all these bank accounts and then provide that long term. What it is also that you plan to add as features into this, right? To really. I know your goal is to create something more, something pretty much holistic, right? Uh, to tackle multiple facets uh, of Islamic finance and, and the ability for people to invest ethically, to manage their, their money and to budget and to save. What are some future you know, projects or features that we can expect within Kestrel yeah. to see? So inshallah, hopefully this week, although Eid coming up fast on a Thursday might put a dent in that. Uh, mm. So right now you can budget and then you can plug in your bank accounts. We'll, uh, look at your transactions and we'll build a bespoke budget for you based on your previous spending and your income. Mm -hmm. uh, next step is we want to help people with investing. So we've reached out with a number of well-known uh, Islamic halal uh, investment brands, uh, people who allow you to invest in property, to invest in gold, investing in small businesses, and we're bringing them all onto the platform. Um, these are people who have really good products, but not a lot of people had heard about them or known about them. So we want to have this investment marketplace where everyone can come on and it's basically a one-stop shop for all of these different investment providers that might be useful to people. So that's what we're launching next, inshallah, in just a week's time. Maybe when this is out, you know, maybe it will already be out, mm -hmm. inshallah. Um, so that's uh, that's immediately what we're planning. 
Step two is our savings products, which we call the Kestrel eggs. So mm -hmm. the whole point of this is that you can set up bespoke savings pots or eggs for goals that you want to achieve, whether it's that house deposit, a car, a wedding, or just for retirement. You can transfer money into those, ring funds them into a nice uh, account, which you, you're not going to be able to spend from because it's disciplined. Well, you know, uh, just ring funds from your main spending account. Um, mm -hmm. And you can build up that money over time. But what we're also doing is, uh, remember I talked about those Islamic banks that do exist in the UK, but not many people use them. Uh, yeah. We are partnering with those banks to actually, um, the money which you are deposited in those, in those pots, you can generate a halal return on them instead of interest, which mm -hmm. a lot of Muslims forego. They just put their money into a current account, which is getting eroded away by inflation um, every single month. So this is a way of countering that and really helping people to take control of their finances. So investment first, and then savings, inshallah, by the summer. Uh, then we want to go eventually to the debit card route and all kinds of other products, including a home purchase plan. That's really where we want to head towards. Amazing, mashallah. So now that you're you're at this stage, and I love the idea of you know people being able to create those savings accounts or even as you mentioned those eggs. I love that term, uh, and it, it falls really uh, well in line with your branding as well and, and the bird that you have uh, as a logo. Uh, shout out to our printer as well. We also have a bird, so. Yeah, <laughs> um, I noticed that. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Mashallah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I love the idea of people being, people being able to, because you know, non-Muslims are able to put money in savings accounts and they're able to, you know, generate interest on that and and be able to accumulate more than what they put in. Uh, unfortunately, Muslims who want to avoid interest in Iba don't have that option. So it's it's really great that you guys are bringing that. Uh, option for Muslims to be able to, you know, benefit from, and it's not, it's interest-free. So if, if you don't mind me asking, how does it work, right? Because it is interest-free. So where is that extra money coming from exactly? So the way in which a lot of Islamic banks generate a return or a halal profit as opposed to interest, mm -hmm. um, it's basically all about what they're doing with people's deposits. So conventional banks, which are non-Islamic, they're lending, they're lending your money out. Uh, whether it's a current account or a savings account, 70 to 80% of that money is being lent out for all kinds of purposes um, to big businesses, you know, people you may agree with and you may not agree with. And they generate a return on those loans, um, interest, uh, which they'll give some, some of it back to you if you have a savings account, but most of it they keep. And that's how uh, banking works. That's called fractional reserve banking. What Islamic banks do is they do something similar, but they only lend out that money um, first of all, it's a completely Islamic uh, Sharia structured product, so there's no interest involved. Um, but secondly, they only lend it out to certain halal providers. So uh, a lot of it goes towards home purchase products here in the UK. So that money is lent out to people taking out Islamic mortgages who pay a, uh, a, you know, a rate of return every single month and some of that money is shared back to you. So it's trying to take it away from interest and not just the money which is received, trying not to base that on interest, but also in the contracts which are drawing it up, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. And, it, and that's really great because it actually creates an ecosystem where everyone benefits, right? So you have the yeah. people that are actually taking out those loans that are benefiting because they're able to now purchase homes that they couldn't before. You're, you're now also benefiting people who are wanting to save and by having them benefit from that as well. And so it creates this beautiful ecosystem where you know, the money circulates and it benefits everyone. So that's an interesting concept. And it shows you that, you know, there are ways to accumulate money and actually, you know, increase your wealth that don't necessarily have to fall into riba. So, you know, that brings me to a discussion on Islamic finance, because this is a growing space right now, 
right? Islamic finance and Islamic fintech. And I've interviewed also other companies on here that are within the space, but not within the UK. So for example, we had Metzil in Toronto, yeah. uh, Canada, and they yeah, offer halal yeah. mortgages. Yeah, so there's a few of them that I've spoken to, I've interviewed, mashallah, and all of you guys are doing, you know, all these amazing projects that are much needed and don't exist yet. So it's cool because we're seeing this new generation of entrepreneurs, you know, these young Muslims that are coming up and seeing this need and realizing, look, we also need a solution. It's not fair that everyone else has one, but we don't. So where do you see this space going in the future? I mean, right now you are one of the pioneers, right? That is doing this in the UK, but where do you see Islamic finance going? Do you think it's a growing industry? Do you think there's potential for more people to get in, to get in and start selling products, services to benefit others in the space? Yeah, uh, we sort of saw a boom in these Islamic finance or these Islamic fintechs, which began maybe about five years ago. Wahid Invest is a very big name, mm. uh, a robo-advisor who set up in the US and now they've gone worldwide. I think they completed the biggest funding round for about 25 million uh, from Saudi Aramco. Um, late last year, mashallah. So, you know, they've, they've been killing it. And there's been a lot of people who popped up since then, in, including us. Um, I think it is growing. Um, we are going to see new people entering. We are already seeing new people entering the market. But I think we're going to also start seeing some people dropping out as well. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. that's what happens with startups and entrepreneurship. Um, you know, it, it doesn't always work. Um, I mm -hmm. think we're going to see, and we already are seeing some consolidations, uh, people partnering up and working together. Uh, we like to see ourselves as uh, collaborating with as many people as possible, bringing people onto our marketplace as investment providers. Um, so you'll be seeing people doing that. So you'll be seeing, um, I think, some people falling out the race entirely, unfortunately. Um, so I think it, there is going to be a correction within it, and a few big players will emerge later down the line. Um, I think it's also worth mentioning that there are, you know, the bigger Islamic banks, which do, do exist in the UK and in some other parts of the world, um, which, you know, they they set up and they came in maybe like the best part of three decades ago to help Muslims at that time who were really struggling for um, loans, for mortgages, for just a place to put their money. And, they, and I don't want to put down the work that they did because it was incredible, it was exemplary, and we're following in their footsteps. But I really hope, and what we're trying to do at Kestrel is that we can work together with those people who came before us, with those banks, because they really have the real capital and the real firepower to take things that we're doing and make them scale. Um, so rather than seeing them as competitors, we see them as collaborators. So I'm hoping to see more collaborations uh, rather than new competitors pop up. Yeah, definitely. And also with you know the space growing and new people essentially developing solutions, product services, new businesses uh, being created, it creates validation that there is a demand in this space, mm -hmm. right? That Muslims are, you know, a, a subset of the population, just like anyone else who have needs and those needs, you know, deserve to be fulfilled and they should be fulfilled you know, just like anyone else. And I think even, <clears throat> sorry, even non-Muslims uh, are now, I mean, if you look at every company, including yours, I believe you have a, a non-Muslim that's part of your company as well, part of your team that I saw on the website. Um, yeah. I forgot his role. He, if he was an advisor, or you can yeah, you can... James Bagshaw. James Bagshaw mm -hmm. is a, you know he's one of our chief advisors. Um, he's worked. Uh, he co-founded one of the biggest Islamic banks in the UK, um, and he's a devout Christian, uh, right. a practicing Christian. It's just that a lot of people who have some kind of ethical values, whether it's religious or non-religious, they are really kind of seeing the sense behind Islamic finance, which mm -hmm. really you know, has all the hallmarks of ethical finance, but just with that Islamic label on top. So a lot of people are seeing the sense in it. 
Yeah, definitely. And I love that because, you know, if more people see the potential, then more businesses who are created and who want to be created have, you know, which will have more interest in getting funding and more potential in getting funding because there's going to be people who say, okay, I realize this is now a growing sector and I'm willing to invest so I can support you in growing this company. So it's always it's always a good thing when these things are happening. And I'm always excited because this new generation of entrepreneurs, yourself, uh, Mohamed Sawa from Manzil, and all these other amazing founders that are creating these Islamic fintech companies. I mean, you guys are really pioneering that change. So hats off to you for that. I love it. Mashallah. Right, thank you. I want to ask you real quick about money management because money management is also a big topic for Muslims. And one I, I feel that we, we tend to struggle with. And Muslims, mashallah, we, we have so much wealth in the community, uh, but sometimes it's not always being circulated and it's not always being used in the best ways. For someone that wants to save up to, inshallah, maybe start a business or you know purchase a home, and you know they have a, an average salary, a regular nine to five. What are some tips that you can share? And I know, of course, you help with the app. Your app is, can help with that as well. So shout out, guys. Make sure to download it. But what are some tips that you can share uh, for us listening in terms of money management, things that you feel every person should be doing? So, I mean, whether you do it through Kestrel or you do it yourself, budgeting is really one of the best places to start. It's very, very easy to fall into this cycle where you get a paycheck, uh, you immediately get excited, you go out and you start buying stuff. Maybe you'll go out with your friends, maybe you'll go see a movie. Um, and then suddenly, you know, third week and the money's all gone and you're wondering why you haven't saved up as much as you have. It can be really good that to build, to uh, bucket your spending into your essential spending, the things that you absolutely need to spend on, whether it's your rent, your bills, your groceries, and then your non-essential spending, the things which are nice to have, which you can always have every month, but you just have to know that your income minus your essential spending minus your non-essential spending is what you are going to be saving for every month, right? And the less that you can spend every month, the more that you're going to be able to save towards those things that matter the most to you. So you, whether you're doing that through an app or you're just doing that with a pen and paper, um, I would recommend doing it through an app because it's a lot easier. <laughs> um, but uh, that can be a really, really good place to start just to make sure you're on top of everything that that is going on. Um, second place, and I can't, I can't stress this more is just understand your debts, especially as a Muslim, um, anything, us doing anything around interest, it's very scary. I think some of the verses in the Quran around this, um, around interest and trying to extricate ourselves from that should be a priority, whether it's paying it or receiving it in any way. Um, so the sooner, and you know, unfortunately debts are a reality of just living in this world. You have to take out certain debts to get on the housing ladder or to go to school. Um, but the sooner you can pay those off, the better. Um, that can be a real thing. But then the third thing, all I'll say is just have those goals in mind. Visualize those goals. I can't tell you how many customers I speak to. Um, and when I ask them what their financial goals are, they don't really have a set idea of what it is. It's kind of like, well, I want to buy a house one day, but I don't really know when that is. I don't know how much that house is. I don't know the area it is. Um, I think a lot of people wait until um, some kind of external event happens that forces them to think about their goals differently, whether it's suddenly they get married or suddenly they have a child and then they think, well, now I need you know, to, to stop renting and find a place of my own. Planning stuff in advance can really save you a lot of pain, a lot of stress um, later down the line. So thinking about that. Oh, and the, the final thing which I'll, um, I'll just say is, um, you know, just th there's this really cool concept in, um, in personal finance known as a uh, sensible optimism, 
which is knowing that there's always going to be ups and downs uh, when it comes to investing, but you can take this to anything in, in life in general. In the short term, there's always going to be, you know, peaks and, and massive troughs with things we're just, just going long. But there's this concept for passive investing, which is if you're investing in the stock market, that generally in the long term, things are going to move upwards and to the right. Things are going to get better over time. And mm -hmm. certainly if you take that view with finances, it can really help you focus on the long-term goal instead of focusing on short-term where things are not going right. Maybe you're not making as much as you want to, or you don't have the job that you want. To visualize those long-term goals and inshallah, make do and those things will, will absolutely happen. Definitely, definitely, mashallah. I love that. The four tips. So we got number one, pay attention to how much you spend versus how much you earn. Number two, debts. How are you paying them off? How are you managing them? Three, goals. Are you setting goals for saving for specific targets? And number four, long-term thinking and optimism and focusing on the long-term when investing. So some great tips there. And I really thank you for sharing that. I, you know, when I when I hear this, I'm like, man, this is something that every single person should be doing, right? Regardless of no, how much, no matter how much you earn, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're an employee, you should be doing this, right? You should be implementing these four tips in your life because you know, all of us in the end, we want to be able to provide for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our families, and to inshallah, you know, get to a place where we could purchase a home if we haven't already, and be in a place where we are we feel financially secure. And these are just some great ways to do that. Now I want to ask you because people can download Kestrel in the UK and they can track their finances. Is it is it available outside of the UK? So for people that are in Canada and the US. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you can absolutely download Kestrel. Uh, budgeting is mainly geared to the UK right now. However, mm -hmm. um, our investment marketplace will be available worldwide. So you can download that and you can check out some of our providers. Many of our providers will be available within the US and Canada and in other parts of the world as well. So you can download Cashflow today and, and check that out. Um, our savings accounts, we're working really hard to get that up and running for international mm -hmm. usage as well. But really, we want to make this a, a worldwide um, type, uh, type of product. So please do check it out wherever you are in awesome. the world and um, inshallah it can benefit you. Definitely. Well, I'm excited to hear that, bro, because I'm here in Canada and I'm like, I hope I'm not being left out right now, uh, me <laughs> and all the Canadians here. So Alhamdulillah, I'm excited to hear that. We'll definitely give it a download. So make sure you check it out, guys. Kestrel, K-E-S-T-R-L.co.uk or alternatively, Kestrel.io as well. I realize that also works. Um, so make sure you check that out. Give it a download. Check it out on the App Store, inshallah. Is it both on Apple, uh, the iOS store yeah. and on Android? And okay. on Android, yeah, that's right. We're not like Clubhouse. Uh, we did focus on both. <laughs> So amazing okay. amazing amazing mashallah amazing yeah and i know you always you know by the way guys if you're on clubhouse uh this is actually how we met right so we, we were on clubhouse we were in different muslim entrepreneurship rooms uh, i joined some of your rooms where you were talking about you know islamic finance money management and you joined some of mine yeah. where we talked about entrepreneurship and that's how we met so it's cool because you know through these apps you get to meet other people you know they're also in business that are doing these amazing projects and, and you get to have these connections so check it out what's your club name if people want to follow what you're doing yeah, Clubhouse. we're called a Muslim Muslim Money Talk. So we're the largest okay. Muslim money uh, type club on Clubhouse. Uh, awesome. We do three shows a week. So yeah, you can you can check that out. All things personal finance. We do some entrepreneurship type stuff as well. And then the psychology of money type uh, discussions too. Awesome, so, yeah, brother. Muslim Money out. Talks. Yeah, definitely. Clubhouse. Make sure you check it out, guys. It's only available on iOS right now, but apparently I've been keeping track and there's an Android version coming soon. So wait. apparently they've released it now, actually. Did they? Did they already America. release it? So okay. yeah, so it is available for Android users to download. I Amazing. think through invites only still. Uh, okay. But in North America, uh, it's certainly available on Android. 
Amazing. So if you're getting on that right now, or if you're probably listening to this even later and it's available, guys, go search for Muslim Money Talks, join that club, and you'll get to actually, you know, have these discussions with Adib, ask him your questions and learn from uh, his experience within Islamic finance and money management. Now, I want to ask you a question that I ask every single guest that comes on the show, and it's the following, which is, if you could meet Adib when he was just starting off, he was still in, uh, you know, having, uh, whether it's dinner or lunch with his friends, and they were having that discussion, yeah. right, about, uh, you know, why are there no solutions for Muslims? Why are there no Islamic banks to be able to save and invest? And you could tell him one thing to hold on to as he goes through this journey that you're not going through. What would that one thing be? Yeah. I think the the one thing that the one piece of knowledge I didn't pass on myself for you know two two and a half years ago when we started this out was that again it's that idea of sensible optimism mm. <laughs> that you know there's going to be incredible highs as an entrepreneur but there's going to be serious lows there's going to be times where you think what am I doing why did I you know leave my job why did I tell my whole family and my friends that I was pursuing this uh, and going down this route you're going to have those moments. Um, but I think it's about, it all starts with what we talked about at the very beginning, which is the team. When you surround yourselves with, yourself with people who, like I fundamentally believe every person at Castrol is better than me. Um, and that's why we hired them in some way, right? When you surround yourselves with, with excellence, with people who know what they're doing, people who have your back and you know have your same kind of um, philosophy and thinking and culture, then those are the people that are going to help you through those dark times. And there's a great uh, essay out there by Paul Graham, who's the founder of, uh, of the Silicon Valley-based accelerator called Y Combinator. And the essay is called 18 Reasons Why Startups Fail. And the number one reason on that list is single founder teams. So people who are founding companies on their own. It can absolutely work for, for many people. You know, There are always exceptions to the rule. However, I think the quote goes that the trials and tribulations of being a founder can be so burdensome that few people can actually bear them alone and it breaks a lot of people so we're surrounding ourselves with a good team of people who have your back you know not i'm not saying yes men sycophants who are just going to agree with everything you say there should be healthy discussion and dispute and, and all of that but that good team are really the people that are going to see you through those dark times so that is i suppose what i would tell myself back then so i just wouldn't freak out as often as i did um, on the journey. <laughs> I love that. I love that much. That's actually really, really relevant. And even to myself, I mean, I started off alone, right, with Omar Printer and Hamdrida. Now I'm we're a team of three, still very small, and we're all wow, self. Only three. Yeah, oh, man. And we're and, and we're we're, yeah, we're very like... uh, we're lean and mean, brother. Yeah. Like we're very scrappy, and we uh, we essentially try to make sure that we can you know maintain. Uh, you know, this business while being self-funded. So we didn't actually go and get any investment. We're kind of doing this all ourselves, putting our own money on the line and uh, trying to grow this company, alhamdulillah. Uh, and, you know, mashallah, I mean, just like you said, you know, it's only three, but then you look at what we're doing and it's alhamdulillah being together and being able to combine our, you know, our, our, our talents and, and, and our energy and, and our thoughts and our experiences really allows us to do so much more than just taking three individual people and having them work on separate tasks and you know separate businesses so there's definitely a huge advantage to that so i can attest to that myself and right now uh, we have actually a few questions that are coming in from the audience so if 
you have, let's see here, we have four or five. So let's see if we can dive into them. Are you ready for some audience Q&A, brother? <laughs> yeah, let's do it, let's do it. All right, all right, mashallah, all right, awesome. So we got a few here actually that, are, that have been, uh, that have started being sent in. So we're gonna, we're gonna go and dive into some of those because I wanna make sure we also get your questions answered, guys. This is why you're on, live on this podcast. So we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna give you that benefit. So one is by brother Nauman, how well do you perform the design sprint? Do you run them or do you hire consultants? It's an interesting question, actually, I like mm. that. Yeah, no, no, definitely. So um, we thought about consultants, getting someone in to do design sprints, but it's something that we'd um, gone through on on our MBA courses. We'd gone through different methodologies. Um, uh, you know, we we settled on one, which was the Google Sprint. Uh, we had some friends who were working at Google who just you know took us through their methodology and what they used. They were kind enough to step in and and help mm -hmm. us out. Um, so, you know, we, we just did it ourselves and we just run through this five day, very quick sprint where on the first day we talk about the problem, trying to come up with, you know, everyone goes through the problem which the actual user is facing for a specific product that we're looking at building, whether it's a budgeting product or the other day we were doing the savings product. So exactly what is the problem people face when it mm -hmm. comes to saving their salary? What is that? Um, the, the second day is we start thinking about, about solutions how to actually pick out those those problems actually designing a solution for it what that's going to look like on the app whether we're building it in a timeline view whether people are going to you know exactly how they're going to interact with it um the next two days are prototyping so we use something called figma uh, figma is this great way of not building the full app but you can actually build a version of the app uh within this really cool prototyping type software which people can click through and get a really good idea of the look and the feel of it and then Friday is all about testing. So we'll have lined up between five and 10 testers. Uh, we'll put them in front of this Figma prototype and get them to play around with it and get their feedback. And then, you know, depending on the feedback, the process begins again and again and again, iterating until we're at a point where we feel that we can actually implement it and put it into the app. So that's the process we use. Um, so in short, we don't use a consultant, we do it in-house ourselves. All right. Awesome. And I love that because, I mean, you know, as a startup, there, is, there are benefits to bringing a consultant. But I think also when you do have a team in place, there is also a great benefit in trying to figure it out yourselves and trying to do things yourself. Because you know, if you fail, it's not really a failure, but a learning lesson, a learning experience. And if you succeed, then you, you, you start developing that confidence and your ability to do so. Right. So in, in both in both directions, whether it ends up being a success or a learning opportunity, uh, you know, there is benefit in both. There's a few more questions here, so we'll go and dive into the next one, inshallah. And this one is how is the uh, how this Islamic fintech app, so Kestrel, can help or increase social Islamic financing like zakat campaigns or charity like Sadaqa. So do you guys actually yeah, touch really on that? Question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I should have mentioned this before, but we partnered hmm. with a very well-known zakat foundation in the UK called the National Zakat Foundation. It's the first and then the biggest, and uh, I think the only. Zakat Foundation that focuses specifically on helping Muslims in the UK. So we integrated their Zakat calculator this Ramadan, uh, just before Ramadan started. So that's something else you can do within the app if, you know, there's there's still potentially a day, two days left of Ramadan. So, um, you know, you can download the app, you can check out the calculator, um, and it goes through these eight really cool different asset classes to calculate mm -hmm. your Zakat on, including things like crypto, shares into different companies, um, and then all the typical usual ones like gold and silver and, and cash and all that kind of thing. You can calculate your zakat and you can donate that directly through the Kestrel app itself. In the future, I really want to do on board. Um, I, sorry, I really want to on board 
um, a bunch of other uh, charities as well. So you can give Sadka. We did something on Clubhouse um, in conjunction with another very well-known club called Muslim Hub, where we were actually raising money for, for charity for um, during during Ramadan. Specifically, we were working with a charity known as Zamzam Trust in the UK, which mm-hmm. are building houses for the for the severely needy in uh, in Bangladesh who needed houses that could withstand the rains and, and the extreme heat as well, uh, which are faced by, by many people out there. So Alhamdulillah, we were able to do that and raise enough money to build about 15 houses uh, for people um, on Clubhouse. And that's something I would love to integrate within the Kestrel app and be able to do things like that in the future. But for now, we are working with National Zakat Foundation for the Zakat. And thank you for reminding me uh, that that is something else that we do. Yeah, awesome. It was actually a really good question. I know I also noticed that on your website when I went on. So definitely a feature that you guys do have implemented, which is amazing to see, alhamdulillah. And that's really what goes to show that when you have companies like this, that even, let's say, you were someone who had the opportunity to invest in something that you know, a Muslim entrepreneur was building and they were building some a solution like uh, Brother Adib, or even if you had the opportunity to invest in uh, Kestrel themselves, you realize that some of the work that they do and a lot of the work that they do actually will revolve around benefiting the Muslim community, it will revolve around, you know, helping and empowering Muslims to give in charity, just like they're doing now with the partnership with the Zakat Foundation. So that money ends up being a benefit to you, not only in growing your wealth, but also in your akhirah, inshallah. And that's the beautiful thing about that. And I just wanted to shine a little bit of a light on that as well. Um, so I love what you're doing, brother. There's Definitely. a few more. Yeah, yeah man, go for it. No, 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 I was just saying thank you. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome, awesome. Alhamdulillah, man. It's, uh, it's an honor. So we got one more here. And this one is, uh, we got two actually. So it's a two-in-one question. Uh, Let's see, how to lend the interest in any investment according to Islamic finance. Okay, so I, I, we're gonna see if we, if, we get, if we have that, maybe it's, it can be reworded. What are the major investment vehicles yeah. of Islamic finance which are free from interest worldwide? Okay, interesting, maybe, okay. We, can, maybe we can focus on that second one. one. Yeah, so, um, so, so look, nothing, uh, I, I think it's important for me to say that nothing that I'll say here is, can be considered investment advice or financial mm-hmm. advice in any way. Um, I'm just giving general kind of personal finance tips and, and guidance. Um, having said that, in terms of some of the asset classes that Muslims tend to invest in historically, it's tended to be gold. Um, that's something which across many cultures, uh, Arab and Desi, um, and otherwise a lot of Muslims have tended to invest in. It mm-hmm. tends to be one of the safer asset classes. Um, you know, it doesn't fluctuate as wildly as some of the others. Um, the second one is property, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, investing in property is something a lot of people and I think our parents' generation are really focused on investing in. I think the property, again, is an amazing asset class. Uh, decent property, you can see a return of between 5 to 8%, um, you know, for, from, from property that you invest in. The only problem with that is that it requires a big initial outlay of capital, requires you to have a lot of capital to actually get into the investment game in, mm-hmm. when it comes to property. So what yeah. we're doing at Kestrel is we're working with a lot of cool providers, which are doing things like crowdfunding into property investment so that you can invest into a property from as little as 100 pounds. So if it was 100 pounds out of a property, which is worth you know 10,000 pounds, you then own 1% of that property, for example. Um, so, so, and then you'll get 1% of the rent and you'll get 1% of the capital when it's, when it's reshared. So those, mm-hmm. those kind of things. The third thing which I'll probably touch on is, and I, I love this myself because I think it's not enough Muslims are doing this, um, it's just passive investing into a tracker fund of some kind. So mm-hmm. um, a tracker fund is basically a collection of shares, of stocks, which make up the top 500 or the top 100 
companies within an economy, whether it's the US um, or whether it's the UK. So the US has um, the NASDAQ, for example, or the S&P 500, which are the top 500 companies. The UK has FTSE, the FTSE 100. And there are all kinds of funds which are set up which just track those companies, right? So they will basically try to replicate the same number of shares or the same proportion of shares that make up those those big um, those big tracker funds, the FTSE or or the S and P. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get halal versions of those funds as well. You get the FTSE Sharia fund, you get the S and P five hundred Sharia fund, which uh, perform just as well and sometimes even better if you look at the S and P five hundred fund than um, the normal one did as well. And this can be a really kind of relatively low risk compared to other asset classes, but with a decent return over a long period of time. Remember when I talked about that idea of, um, of uh, you know, optimism, sensible optimism, the idea that investments are going to generally increase in the long term, going upwards and to the right. That's exactly what these tracker funds are doing. So as long as you're investing for a relatively long amount of time, so we're not talking about five years, we're talking about 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, decades long, then you're investing for this really cool concept called compounding to come into effect, which is you're not just making a return on that initial £10,000 or $10,000 you invested, but the money that you made on that $10,000 each in the first year, you reinvest that. And then the money made on that additional money, you're reinvesting that. Um, So that money is constantly reinvested until it snowballs and you get this exponential effect known as compounding. I'm probably not Mm -hmm. explaining this very well, but if you have any more questions on that, just drop it in the chat and we can go into that further. But taking advantage of compounding in the long term is literally how billionaires are made. It's what Warren Buffett did um, and how he's became a, you know, he's now worth, I think, just under 100 100 billion uh, Mm -hmm. now, um, you know, personally because he's been he's been investing uh, for the past 80 years and taking advantage of compounding. So yeah. there you go. Mm, definitely. No, some definitely powerful tips there. And we got one from Brother Norman, Norman Islam, one more. So you've worked in three of the big four. What skills would recommend? Would you recommend to young Muslims to, to build or work on these Islamic ventures? It's a very, very great question, actually. I love that one. Sure. So I've, I've actually worked in two of the big four, Deloitte and PwC. I worked for a smaller consultancy in between. Uh, but I've got good friends at EY, uh, so I like to think that I work there as well. And we've done a few <laughs> things with them at Kestrel. So, um, look, uh, the tips which you can amass to, to launch something in the Islamic fintech space, I think they're the same kind of skills that you would do for anything in, you know, that you would need for any kind of entrepreneur um, mm. or in any kind of entrepreneurial venture. Um, I think it's the idea of learning how to fail fast, learning how to build a strategy very quickly in the short term get to building that minimum viable product, that initial prototype very, very quickly. Um, you know, generally, I love the idea of building something within a three week period. And whatever you can build in three weeks, that is what your MVP or your prototype is. And that could be as simple as just a, a landing page and an Excel spreadsheet or a WhatsApp group or something like that, just to test the idea out. Um, that's a really, it's something that can be very difficult to get your head around, especially if you're somewhat of a perfectionist and you want your idea to be perfect. But just doing anything that you can to try and solve the the problem in some kind of way is the best kind of show of validation to an investor or to yourself or to any kind of stakeholder that you can have rather than spending six months to a year building a product that wasn't going down the right path in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so all this kind of stuff, you can get it from all kinds of places. I'm not going to say go and work at a big four or go and do an MBA because most of this stuff you can get online for free. Um, I would really recommend Y Combinator, YC, 
um, they have all these podcasts where it's basically a free education. Uh, so you, they'll tell you all about how to talk to your customers, uh, you know, how to pitch appropriately, um, what kind of KPIs or key performance indicators you should be tracking. Um, it's all out there and you can pick that up. Uh, but the biggest thing that I would say is just whatever idea you have, just start doing it. Don't wait. Um, just just start doing it in some way, shape or form, because that's the best education you're you're going to get there. Mm-hmm. I hope that answered the question. Well, it definitely did for me. <laughs> so I love that. <laughs> and I, I love the I love what you suggested because a lot of people do get stuck on that. They get stuck on uh, the part of uh, the part of you know I want to build something and it's never ready because there's all it can always be better. It can, and there's always more that I can add to yeah. it. And this is a trap that many entrepreneurs fall into, unfortunately, and it, and it ends up being uh, you know this type of action paralysis where they're now unable to release the product and they're unable to actually launch the business and it takes them months and and years instead of you know just taking a few weeks build something test it out and then go and you know add all the bells and whistles and 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 make it perfect right yeah absolutely absolutely and also don't be afraid of talking to other people because i know a lot of people who are like well if i tell them my idea they're going to steal it um and i used to fall into that trap as well um, I think the thing is, look, ideas are a dime a dozen. If you have the idea, I can guarantee there's at least 12 other people out there who have been thinking the exact same thing. But the thing which will differentiate you from them is having the actual willpower and the um, and just the just the strength to actually go out there and build something. That's the hard part. You, the idea is easy. It's actually building the thing that is going to take time and really separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. So, um, so yeah. brother. Well, this episode was insightful for me. It was valuable. There were many gems and insights shared. And honestly, I just hope that everyone listening, make sure that you've taken notes because some of these tips that we talked about today, the money management tips, and also strategies about how to prepare to pitch investors, as well as so many other topics that we touched upon, I'm sure will benefit all the entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast, inshallah. So brother Eddie, thank you so much for coming on, man. How can people go and support you and, and, and follow Kestrel and stay up to date yeah. and, you know, just, just be part of your journey. Yeah. So if you head over to uh, Kestrel.io, so that's K-E-S-T-R-L.io, uh, cool. you can download the app. You can also sign up to our newsletter. We're doing a bi-monthly newsletter where we'll share with you podcasts, articles, tips, um, and also new features within the app. So you can sign up to that, inshallah. Um, download the app as well. We're doing some cool things in there. New features we're dropping every couple of weeks. And we're also running a, uh, a giveaway at the moment, uh, an iPhone 12 giveaway. So all you need to do is download the app and refer your friends through a unique link. Similar to Clubhouse, the invite thing, we took inspiration mm-hmm. from that. So refer your friends. The more friends you invite, the more entries into the giveaway. So uh, that's open to anyone. So please do refer your friends and download Kestrel is the best way. Otherwise, you can uh, get in touch with me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, Arib Siddiqui, just find me Arib Siddiqui Kestrel and I'm more than happy to help people. Awesome, awesome brother. Well, let me ask you guys, on which podcast do you get to listen and then get a chance to win an iPhone 12? Well, you get to do this <laughs> on the Omerpreneur Live podcast. Thanks to brother Arib Siddiqui. Go and sign up for that newsletter guys and participate in the giveaway and spread the word because this is an app worth sharing and inshallah they will keep building and working on it and making it better and better and i'm so excited to see what's in store for their future so inshallah maybe we'll even bring you bring you on in a couple of months once there's a few more releases and talk about that as well i'd love to be back thank you so much for having me this time around it's been one of the best podcasts i've done 
So Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much. Alhamdulillah. It's an honor, brother. It's an honor. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. And make sure to subscribe and read the podcast, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Make sure to follow and support. And we'll see you in the next episode, guys. Take care. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.